You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee after a big, 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 big weekend. Big weekend. We had our ladies' worship event come away. And boy, did they come away. I mean, we had a fantastic time. Jennifer Roberts was phenomenal. Rachel Fagutu led worship seven sessions and preached two of them. She did fantastic. Kelsey was excellent. Whole team really did a good job. And uh, just a ton of folks from different churches. I think we counted about 10 different churches represented. And uh, I, my guess is that'll probably end up being a, an annual event because it was it was a huge hit. And then we rolled into Sunday. Sunday morning was fun. Taught on Psalm 2 and the idea of, of the kings of the earth raging against God and what that whole chapter means. I'm not going to pre-preach it before I play the audio, but that's what we talked about Sunday. So good to be together. So good to hear from uh, some of you who are listening online on Sunday mornings or you're listening to the podcast later. Hey, could you do me a favor? This would be helpful to me. I just want to know who you are. Like, we don't know really see numbers, but I don't have any idea of who these people are. And it would be super helpful. Email me, randy at thebridgekc.church. Randy at thebridgekc.church. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from. We would love to know who you are. Have a great day. Audio from Sunday morning coming up. We've been working our way through a four-part series uh, over the qualities of what the church will be. And this is certainly not the definitive word on these four things. We're going to talk about these four things over and over again. We're really just kind of dipping our toe in the water that we're going to swim in as a body. We talked about the belief in the gospel as something that transforms people's lives completely. That you come to Jesus, you do not need to stay the way you are. Okay? If you are the way you were 20 years ago and you've been following him somewhere, you missed a memo because he is here to transform your life and change you. We talked about the idea of being a sending church or a church that doesn't just give to missions, but sends our people. And the fact that we are missionaries, whether we go around the world or across the street to talk to our neighbor. We talked about the idea of community and the blessing and the challenge of calling one another higher last week. And this week, part four, we're going to talk about being a church with an eye towards the future. Kelsey mentioned it is Pentecost Sunday. The first time we met after COVID hit was last year, Pentecost Sunday. We met out at uh, the Barnet River Bend. Some of you were there. And I remember at the time thinking, well, we'll start doing this regularly. Ha, huh, the Lord laughed. We met about four more times over the course of the year, but that was the beginning. That was also the first time that any of us ever used the word church in relation to what we were doing. Up until that point, we didn't even know what to call it. It was just, we were just a bunch of people online trying to connect. In reality, the seeds of the church were sown earlier than in the days of Pentecost. Before Pentecost, before in the Bible, where the Holy Spirit was poured out in people in the upper room, and where many people say that's where the church began, the seeds for that were sown earlier. If you go to Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11, these are not probably in your notes, maybe they are. But when they had come together, they asked him, this is after, the, after his crucifixion and resurrection. They come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Just a little side note there. Don't ever feel bad if you get the timing wrong on what God is doing. The disciples traveled with him for three years, saw miracle after miracle, saw him crucified, raised from the dead, still fairly clueless about what he was about to do. Don't feel bad if you don't know what God is doing. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power where the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Most people, when they're reading the passage, stop there, but there is more to this story. They take that, they run with it, and there's a lot to run with there. But the story continues, and he, when he had said these things, they were looking on, and he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Because Jesus just got sucked up into the sky. Okay, excuse me if I'm standing staring into heaven. I've seen a lot of things following Jesus. I have never seen this. They go on to say, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And that last sentence changed everything. It gave their life meaning and hope. It drove the expansion of the gospel that Jesus, who just went up, is coming back down. That idea of a day of reckoning or there being a day when good is rewarded and evil is punished that made logical sense even outside the bounds of Christianity or Judaism. Even your friends that are lost as a goose in a hailstorm think that evil should be punished. That wasn't unusual. But this idea that Jesus would return turned everybody's heads upside down. The writer of Hebrews, 30 years later, is still hammering this nail. In chapter 9, 27 and 28, he said, Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. In other words, you expect there are going to be some kind of judgment. Even the people that are lost think that evil should be punished. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He says, yeah, yeah, you expect there to be a reckoning day for right and wrong, but Jesus is coming back for those who are looking for him. 30 years later, he's reminding them, look forward because this life is not all that there is. He's coming back. I think one of the greatest issues that pl plagues the modern church is a lack of belief or a lack of understanding that he's coming back. The way he went up, he will return. And we're so consumed with our problems of the moment that we don't think about the long game that he does return. Grew up in the Midwest where schools were small and budgets were smaller. And so most teachers taught a random assortment of classes that had nothing to do with one another. You know, it wasn't like your teacher taught ninth grade English and that's all they taught. And in the Midwest, almost every driver's ed teacher had the same name, coach, okay? The coach was the, I don't know why, somewhere it's written in the annals of history that the coach got to teach driver's ed. How many of you driver's ed teacher was a coach? See, you thought I was crazy, it's true. In my little hometown, it's likely that 90% of the people under the age of 50 were taught to drive by a man named Coach Dan Brecky. We were all taught to drive by Dan Brecky. Think about that. If you live in a small town and you're the driver's ed teacher, you're somewhat responsible for every accident that happens in that town. 
because they two get out and they start to argue, who taught you to drive? Dan Brecky, same guy that taught you to drive. Well, I guess it's his fault. But Coach Brecky had to say the same thing over and over again for generations of drivers. He taught some of our parents to drive, probably teaching some of our kids to drive. But he had to say the same thing over and over again to almost everyone because they all make the same mistake. You have to look further down the road. You can't look right at the end of the, if you taught, you tried to teach your kids to drive, they look right at the end of the, of the hood and you know, they're doing this all the time. And you're like, no, no, you got to look further down the road. The writer of Hebrews is telling the church, you got to look further down the road. You've got to look further if you want to navigate life. This idea that Jesus is coming back for those who are eagerly waiting, we're not simply here for our own concerns. But we're a part of this grand drama of all eternity. That is why the bridge, okay, us, that is why we look with an eye towards the future. I don't ever get, want to get in a place where you're so consumed with what we're doing in the next service and the next song that we don't do it in context of the fact that, guys, he's coming back. He's coming back. As a church, we want to help bridge the gap between the age that we live in and the age that is coming and prepare you for that day. Because we have an eye for the future, we are going to look at certain passages of the Bible and talk about the days to come with the understanding that the life we live right now has an effect on those days. One of the marks of adulthood is the understanding that what we do today will matter later. Children do not understand this. No connection between what they're going to do next and what's going to happen. Men, we don't get it till about 40. Okay, we, like, we're 40 before we realize the stuff we're eating has an effect with how we feel days later. It's all of a sudden, oh, I can't do that anymore. Something changes. It's a mark of adulthood that we realize what we do now matters later. We are not children. We're not going to act like children. We're going to look at the scriptures in light of the long game and the fact that Jesus is coming back. And so we're going to look at cer certain passages in that light, and that's what we want to do today. We want to look at Psalm 2 in light of eternity. Psalm 2 is a passage that is often quoted in short chunks. And the reason is it's so potent that those couple of verses here and there can really ring your bell. But the other reason why it's only quoted in short chunks is there are so many characters speaking in Psalm 2 that it's a little bit confusing when you read it all at once. You're like, wait, who, who, what, who, what, who's this, huh? If you came to my house for dinner, and there were, are not children in your home? It's a bit overwhelming. Lots of voices, okay? Lots of voices. And if you don't know who the voices are or how they fit in, and, you know, to make it more confusing, some of them are twins, and who are you? And it's very confusing. My older twins tell stories in stereo, okay? They will tell you the same story at the same time. And because they've never known life apart from each other, it's almost like they don't hear the other voice and they both just talk nonstop. And, they'll t and you kind of have to hear both tracks of the stereo to get the whole story. But I took them to the doctor one day and together the doctor says, how do you feel? And they just both start telling the doctor how they feel. And the doctor's like, well, she looks at me and goes, do they always do this? I'm like, yeah, pretty much. If you don't, aren't able to distinguish the voices in Psalm 2, it can be a little bit confusing. 
So I want to give you an overview of this passage, which has meaning at the end of the age, but also in this moment, kind of builds you kind of a chicken wire frame that you can put the different verses in and understand who is speaking and why they are speaking. And we've got to study this because this is a bridge chapter. I don't mean just bridge us, but I mean this bridges us into eternity. There are things described in this chapter that are happening now and will happen unto the end of the time, and then things that will happen even beyond that. And this chapter helps us understand that. Things a little confusing about Psalm 2 is there are multiple voices speaking in just 12 short verses. Charles Spurgeon, the London pastor in the 1800s, described Psalm 2 as a great drama playing out on the world stage in four acts. Okay, it's in four acts. If you've gone to see your kids play, you know that they come out, that uh, act one, curtain shut, curtain opens, completely different group of people. You're like, is this the same show? What's going on? Yeah, yeah, just keep listening. Oh, I understand how it all fits. Curtain shuts, opens again. There are four acts in Psalm 2, and if you think of it that way, it's a little bit easier to understand. Let me give you the four, and then we're going to back up and unpack them a little bit, okay? Act 1, the kings of the earth. Role, those who are in roles of authority and leadership roles. In the time past, this was always royalty. In recent decades, probably political leaders. In the day that we live in, the kings of the earth may not even hold any political office. Think about things like Facebook. If Facebook were a nation, it would be twice the size of China. The executives of that organization have a crazy unusual sway. or In a sense, a king of the earth. So the first section are the kings of the earth, and they all join together for a meeting, and then they speak in one voice, and then the curtain shuts. Curtain opens again, and it's God the Father who responds to the king of the kings of the earth. So the second act is God responding to their voices. Psalm 50, verse 3, it's not on your notes, but it says, Our God comes, and he does not keep silent before him is a devouring fire around him, a mighty tempest. In the second act of Psalm 2, God speaks. One of the complaints of people who deride God and say, you know, if God is real, why? One of the complaints is, why doesn't he do something? All of the evil in the world, why doesn't God do something? I'll explain why he doesn't do something about all the evil of the world. Grace. You don't want him to deal with all the evil in the world yet. You do understand you're in that category. You don't want him to purge the earth quite yet. But he speaks in Act 2. We'll talk about that in a minute. Act 3, curtain shuts, curtain opens, and it's Jesus the Son. Jesus speaks, and it's interesting what Jesus speaks, because when the curtains open, Jesus is handed the microphone, and he speaks the words of the Father. They should have seen that coming. He does it over and over through his earthly ministry. He repeats the words of the Father. John 14, I'm sorry, 12, 49 says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me himself has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So act one is the kings of the earth. Act two is God the Father. Act three is Jesus the Son who says what he said. And then act four is David who makes his comments, the closing remarks. See, how do you know this is David? It doesn't say that David wrote this. No, but in Acts 2, 42 to 44, the writer of Acts attributes this psalm 
to David. So if Acts is or is ordained of the Lord, if Acts is anointed, if Acts is unfallible, then David wrote this. So let's go back up to the top and go through these four acts and kind of unpack them a little bit. Act one of Psalm two, the voices of the kings of the earth. Let's read verses uh, one through three. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now we place this, when we read it, we place it in ancient history and we think of kings with crowns and around a table and we picture literal kings and there is some truth to that, gathering for a summit and declaring their hatred for God. That happened and will continue to happen. But the kings might look a little different. I'll talk about that in just a second. But understand there has been among the kings of the earth whether they be royal or political leaders or the titans of technology or business, there's been a very real resistance to the voice and the purpose of God. And that has taken place and it's taken form of them trying to replace God and replace him with their, themselves. Bible says they took counsel together. They held meetings together. They planned together and said, this is how we will do this. Some of you are thinking this is some serious Lord of the Rings stuff. This is bizarre. And it would be hard to believe if there were not so much historical precedent for this happening. Over the course of history, the kings of the earth have often tried to replace God. In Genesis 11, we read of people building a tower, the Tower of Babel so that they could ascend on high and relate to God at an eye-to-eye level and be like God. If we can just build something substantial, we can look him in the eye. And you may read this, and you may think, well, this is a populist uprising. This is just the people, you know, gathered together and, and let's do this. Have you ever seen a populist uprising try and build something? Ever seen anything constructed without a foreman? Looks like I built it. I mean, it just doesn't work, Okay. No, no, no. There was a leader. You won't find it in scripture, but in the writings of Josephus, who was the premier biblical uh, authoritative historian, Josephus attributes it to King Nimrod. He said, now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it were his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage which procured that happiness. So the king, Nimrod, inspired the people to build the Tower of Babel. He was plotting and saying, we can be like God. Throughout history, there have been the kings of the earth, drunken with power, and the prospect of being more than what they were, who took issue with God. And they thought, if we can't crush God, maybe we can crush his people. And that's what we've seen by the kings of the earth over the past two weeks. As countries in the Middle East have pressed against Israel. You say, well, wasn't that just kind of Hamas? Hamas can't feed their people. Where do you think they get their guns? The nations of the earth fund them because if they can't crush God, they're going to try and crush the Jewish people. But that idea of the kings gathering and taking counsel together, that seems so ancient or so far in the past. How could that possibly happen? It doesn't seem like anything like that would happen in our society. We have moved so far beyond the Stone Age of the Old Testament. 
Actually, our sophistication has empowered another kind of potential cabal by the kings of the earth today. We may be a democracy, but we have kings of our own, and they are beginning to align against God. Now, what I'm about to refer to you here is an example of how it is not what, okay? Everybody say how, not what. Thank you. I never get you to say things back to me, but I just want to be really clear you heard me on that one. Okay, this is an example of how, it's not an example of what. I'm not saying this is that, I'm saying this is how it can happen. I am not describing the persecution of the church, I'm describing a vehicle that is now in place that can serve as delivery of that. With the chaos that preceded and followed the 2020 election, the American dream version of the kings of the earth do not control armies, they control communication. And they decided that if you interpreted certain events differently than they interpreted them, that they could pull the plug on your ability to share on their platforms. Okay? Now, from a free market and political perspective, I kind of get that. Okay? There are certain things I would not let you say in my house. And I would throw you out of my house. So I get that. However... It was very interesting that all of the social media platforms aligned against one version of the story. And again, this is not that. I'm not pointing to that. You may like one version of one ver or the other version of the story. That's not my point. My point is the mechanism is there for a small number of people. When the people who control the disbursement of the information also control what the information is, that's a national cult. I'm not here to tell you who was right or wrong. It's not my point. My point is the kings of the earth in America are in the boardrooms of tech companies. And they can quickly purge any source of information they want. If they were offended because somebody thought of political events differently than they thought they did, how long will it be before they react to something even more offensive, like the phrase, Jesus is Lord? Well, wait a minute. Wait, how, what do you feel about Islam? I was not talking about Islam. I said, Jesus is Lord. Well, what about Buddha? Well, I said, Jesus is Lord. Okay, you know what? You can't say that anymore because that doesn't fit the narrative. I really believe that within, we're talking years. We're not talking decades. We're talking year, years. There will be some pivotal event in our nation surrounding faith and the kings of the earth will move to silence the church. Some of you thought it was persecution because Starbucks couldn't say Merry Christmas anymore. That wasn't persecution, okay? Please don't tell anyone from another country that was persecution. But the day is coming when we will be silenced for about this long because the Lord who allows technology to be developed is not rattled or shaken when that technology is no longer available to the church. And the church will not be silent long. But that's what it looks like in our context for the kings of the earth to form a cabal and press an agenda, and it will come after the church. Whatever you thought about, that's not my point. You understand? I'm not talking about the politically correctness of it. I'm talking about the mechanism that can now move quickly. That's what it looks like for the kings of the earth to press back against God. Curtain shuts. Scene changes. Scene two, God the Father. Anybody ever said anything totally outrageous at your dinner table? 
It's like every night somebody says something just like, and all eyes turn towards dad. How's dad going to respond to the crazy thing that that one person said? In act one of Psalm two, the kings of the earth declare war on the idea of God. In act two of Psalm two, God the father responds. And it's not exactly what you think at first. Psalm two uh, verses four to six. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his furies, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God responds three times really quickly in act two over these couple of verses. He doesn't even get up, doesn't even stand, but he laughs. How do you initially respond to an attack? It speaks volumes about what you think about those who are attacking you. Okay? I don't know if you saw it or not. The Bullender children brought a puppy this morning. I can explain. Okay? New puppy. Can't leave it at home. We have become those people. I'm sorry. But we don't know that the puppy knows Jesus, so maybe it's a good thing. We bring the puppy, but this puppy now is very small. Wouldn't fit in a teacup, probably fit in a good-sized coffee mug. She's really tiny, but she is completely full of herself. And she will destroy her toys. And then when she's done with that, she'll think about attacking you. And we laugh at her. Like minor, minor ankle damage is about all this dog could do. It's, it's, she's cute. She's little. She's playful. You scoop her up and you, you know, that's, we laugh. Why? Because she's, she can't do anything. When God hears the plans of the kings of the earth, he laughs. Tell me again, Nimrod. Tell me about that tower you're building. How'd that all turn out? Nebuchadnezzar, about that statue. And he laughs. Tell me again, world leaders, about this alliance against me. Tell me again, again. Leaders of the technological realm, how you're going to stop me by pulling the plug on a technology that I allowed you to develop. If all he did was laugh, it would be over. But he laughs, and then the Bible says he holds them in derision. Just because he laughs doesn't mean he's putting up with it. He laughs, but then he expresses his displeasure. He is not neutral about what the kings of the earth are planning against him. He is not neutral about what is being said about him. He's not neutral about what's being said about his son in our culture. He's not even neutral about what is being said in some church settings about his son. He holds some of that in derision because he takes it as a personal attack. Many in the church are really bothered about God having a personal opinion about anything. <laughs> they want him to speak, but not about anything they're doing. He's like, no, 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 no. I hold some of that in derision. The psalmist notes it, or he mocks them, or he ridicules them. He voices his justified opposition. Can you imagine God finally speaking out and realizing that you were on the other side of the equation? It's like, I didn't think it was going to play out this way. So he laughs, he holds them in derision, and then he speaks. Finally, after all the improper, out-of-line, 
inopportune dinner table talk and the promise of attack by the kings of the earth, God the Father speaks in the second act. And the Bible says that how God responds to the leaders of the earth who would boast against him and how he responds to them, the Bible says, actually terrifies them. He doesn't go into great detail. He doesn't lay out a huge plan. He just makes a very simple statement about who is really in authority. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And these kings of the earth, the Bible says, they are terrified because Jesus is everything that they are not. He is true. He is faithful. He is loyal. He is wise. He is all-powerful. And he is a begotten son. He's not a token. He's not a created being. And they realize that now that they, he has put Jesus in place, oh my word, we're going to battle against God himself. We thought we were battling all these yahoos that are following him. We had no problem devastating people who were following him, but now we're actually battling against Jesus. Act one, the kings of the earth. Act two, God the Father's response. Then the voice changes again. And act three is the voice of Jesus the Son. Starts out in Psalm chapter two, verse seven, goes through nine. And he says in the very beginning, this is what Jesus says when it's his turn. Curtain opens, Jesus has the microphone. He says, I will tell of the decree. Jesus said, I'm gonna tell you what he told me. All I'm gonna do is repeat the words of the Father into this situation and add my yes and amen. Even Jesus, when representing God against evil and when he is attacked, resists temptation and resists attack by repeating the words of his father. He said, I will tell of the decree, this is what my father says. Let me tell you, when you are being challenged by the enemy, the most powerful thing you can do is repeat back to the enemy what God the Father has already said to you. It is not the time for you to freestyle a response. Okay? Do not wing it. I, uh, I proctored a class on homiletics at a Bible college one time. Homiletics is where they teach you to preach. I did take the class at one point, by the way. Some of you are wondering. No, I, taught, I did. Took the class, and then I was proctoring it with a friend, Tom Mills. Some of you probably even knew Tom back in the day. Kindest man I've ever known in my life. But these students each had to preach a 20-minute sermon. Most of them had never shared a devotional or anything, and so they had to preach 20s. We sat through week after week of absolutely terrible sermons. But one was so exceedingly terrible that it was far more terrible than all the others. Because it became very clear about a minute into it that this kid had not given 30 seconds thought to what he was going to say. When he was done with this terribly outstanding sermon, outstanding because it was more terrible than all the others, Tom, who I never heard ever say an unkind thing about anything, got up and said, other than pass the time, what were you hoping to accomplish? And the kid said, to be honest, I forgot about it, and I just got up and winged it. Tom looked at him with fire in his eyes. He goes, never wing it in my class again. I'm pretty sure the kid didn't do it. 
when you are under attack, don't wing it. Don't just, ah! no, 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 no. Repeat back. Even Jesus, the son of God, when facing the kings of the earth said, I will declare the decree. <laughs> I didn't even make the decree. I'm just going to agree with my father. If Jesus responds with Bible verses, why do we try and fight our darkness with willpower? Why would we do that? Some of you are like, I'm trying to get my head above water and I'm just not strong enough. You're right about that. Repeat the scripture. It's what Jesus did. So Jesus responds. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus is repeating the words of God. Ask of me and I will give the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus tells them, it is the will of the Father that I destroy those that stand against him. And because the Father and I are one, I am up for the fight. When a kingdom is overthrown and the kings of the earth are overthrown, those that the kings of the earth hold in subjection are able to go free. And the response of God spoken through his son Jesus is a destruction of those that are holding people in suppression so that when those kings' hold is broken over those nations, the people have the freedom to choose. North Korea is the longest-running family dictatorship in existence, but one day it will bow to Jesus as his inheritance. China runs roughshod over untold numbers of Uyghur people, persecuting them for their religion. And one day China, willingly or otherwise, will bow at the feet of Jesus. The United States squanders opportunities for greatness because we are so consumed with lesser things. And one day, by our choice or otherwise, we will kneel at the feet of Jesus because the people of those nations are his inheritance. He's going to have them one way or the other. And God is not concerned with going to battle against the kings of the earth, but he is concerned with the people of the nations because they're his son's inheritance. And he said to Jesus, who then repeated it, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. And God, being a good father and knowing how to good, give good gifts, will give that gift to his son. Act one, the kings of the earth. Act two, God the father. Act three, Jesus the son. Then we get to act four. David's closing remarks. These are the words of the man who has been peering over the fence the entire time. He's like, I got opinions. I've been watching this. Sometimes I wonder what our neighbors would say about us, especially us. You know, just peering over the fence. There's a lot of kids over there. Now they got a dog too. You know, it's just a wonder. David is peering over the fence. And these are the words of the man who's been watching, hasn't been involved in the fray, knows his place, but he makes a very wise observation. Psalm 2, 10 to 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. <laughs> it's like you guys at the beginning of the play, look out! Rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoice with temp- you guys better bow your knee now the best you could hope for is you be counted with the people of the nations and not the angry kings kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are all those who take refuge in him this is a warning against the leaders of the nations of the earth, but it's also a warning of those who stand in leadership positions anywhere. Pastors, fathers, mothers, workplace leaders. If you influence others directly or indirectly, be aware that your actions against the will of God the Father put you in a very critical place of those who will face the wrath of God for your leadership over others if you led them the wrong way. See, the trick is we read this and we think this is about some king in the 1400s that met in the back of a cave with other kings. No, no, no. This is for all kings of the earth, including kings of our own heart. Even us. I want to ask if our musicians would come for a moment. As a church... As people with eyes to the future, we study passages like this for insight into what is coming in our own lives and on the global stage. Both of those realms disconnected from loyalty to the Father will end up in rebellion and the response of God through Jesus the Son is devastating to people. That's why David tells you, I've seen this play out before, kiss the Son. I've seen how this acts when people resist the Lord and it never ends well. You want to draw near to him in affection. You don't want to hold him at an arm's distance. You want to walk right with him and declare your allegiance. I saw an article yesterday about a number of congressional leaders who were in the crossfire of a political happening this week. And on a very crucial vote, they voted present. I'm here. But I'm not saying yes, and I'm not saying no. Nobody votes present in the election of your own heart at the end of the age. You don't get that luxury. You can only place your trust in Jesus and be counted among those who've gathered with him. With our eyes to the future, we want to celebrate communion this morning. Jesus said, we're going to read the passage in a minute. I will not celebrate this with you again until I return. So the idea of celebrating communion, we remember his death, but it's also anchored in the future. This is a very eyes toward the future thing. We thank him for his broken body and his spilled blood. But we also look forward and hope for the moment that we celebrate this with him again.